This is Citizens of Tech, show number four, recorded on the 21st of May, 2015. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Citizens of Tech. Feel free to give us feedback or just interact in whatever way you so desire. I am Eric Zutphen. You can follow me on Twitter at Zutphen. You can also read my blog at Zutphen.com. With me today, and apparently ready to take a nap immediately following his <laughs> distillation and application of techie goodness uh, to your earbuds, is Ethan Banks. Uh, ready to take a nap is sadly true. <laughs> Maybe in the middle? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So it's just, it's one of those, I'm having one of those weeks where I haven't been sleeping all that well. Uh, and so, so last night I ended up waking up out of a sound sleep at about quarter to four in the morning and never really got back to sleep after that. I mean, I tried, it just didn't work out. So, and this was, this has been happening to me a lot lately where I've been having a dream that's so intense and freaking me out uh. that I get woke up scared not maybe not scared but just my whole body just on full alert adrenaline is surging adrenaline surging heart pounding that has been what's happening and uh and last night i dreamed that a relative had collapsed on the floor of a heart attack or something it was just lying there and I couldn't because there were other people around. I couldn't get close enough to see what was going on. Oh, geez. and I'm, all I can see is this person I know, kind of lying on the floor there. And uh, and then and then they were gone, and an ambulance had come and was taking them away. And I could I was trying to find out from someone: it, it, Are they all right? Is it everything going to be okay? What's going on? Did they die? And I was so keyed up and concerned and wound up about this whole thing that it actually woke me up. I my heart was just pounding, and uh, oh, 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 that was totally a dream. Okay, wow. Okay, good. But there was no going back. <laughs> there was no going yeah. back, dude. Yeah. I got up. I. Uh, I, I did my business and went back to bed, laid back down. And then my brain started cogitating on all the stuff that happened at work yesterday. And by at work, well, I work for myself, but my boss is kind of a jerk. And <laughs> anyway, that just all, all the things I was been dealing with there started to, uh, to hit me. And then I started thinking about, Oh, I'm not really prepared to do this. Oh, I got to do that. And yeah, it was all over. Fight, fight or flight turned into planning <laughs> planning ahead mode but hey we got a good show today so enough about me and my sad dreams <laughs> whatever else is wrong with me yeah so as usual we're gonna look at the present first uh the podcast works in three segments present past and future tech and we'll we'll kick off with the present here uh we've got an interesting article via ars technica here that is a preview of a console that is it's it's not ready it's not actually in development yet but um it's called the retro vgs and uh ethan you found this and and when i looked at the article the first image that greeted me i was taken aback because i looked at the they have a a, a prototype on the website there and i'm looking at it going holy cow that's the atari jaguar yeah, and this thing's got got a got a video game cartridge system. That's the intent of this. So Retro VGS wants to uh as the article puts it, revive the humble video game cartridge. Now, which doesn't mean that they want you to be able to play old video game cartridges on this console. Right. They actually are going to do new cartridges based on flash uh memory. Yeah. And uh which does that even make sense? I mean, we download I, games now, I, right? I'm, I'm, it's kind of endearing to me, yeah, um, because my you know my background is so much the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Super Nintendo, the Sega Genesis. Yeah, These yeah. were all cart things. Yeah, um, th- there's something to be said for having a physical thing. Yes. I think um, you know it, you you can download all the MP3s you want, but it's also nice to have the CD. Or you know you can download digital videos, but I still buy I still buy Blu-rays mm. um, because I like to have a thing. Well, what did you think of the the I mean the, the the Jaguar bit? It's not like it's Jaguar hardware; it's just the shell, so it looks like a Jaguar, yeah, which is so kind of got the retro reminiscent. In, interesting backstory on that: the Atari Jaguar, if anyone's not familiar, was a complete flop. <laughs> they they tried to come out with you know they they touted it as the first sixty-four bit. Uh, video game system, which it really wasn't. It had two 32-bit processors and a 64-bit um, video processor, as as my understanding goes. Um, 
And the 32-bit systems that came out shortly after they debuted this just kicked its can all around the play yard. Mm. Um, and this thing couldn't do 3D. The textures were horrible. I mean, it, it could do 3D, but not like the uh, the PlayStation and the uh, Saturn, Sega Saturn. Mm-hmm. And so the thing just flopped. They They overproduced it and all that. So what did they do with the overstocked hardware? They converted it into dental equipment oh right i remember you telling me about this or i forget if it's x-rays or or something but basically you you could go into these dentist office and you'd see an atari jaguar console on the wall just painted white or whatever not that it was a jaguar it was just a reuse right. of um, and it had, had yeah, paddles and, and all that uh. and custom software had been written for it and you know rewritten to, to the, the dental imaging stuff for, yeah for dental imaging <laughs> that's cool um so these guys have found have tracked down the actual equipment to produce those shells. And they're going to produce the shells that look exactly like an Atari Jaguar, basically for their custom, you know, system on a chip or whatever chipset they're going to be developing for this thing. So the interesting, uh, the interesting bit about the cartridge is like you said, what remains to be seen is, are they going to be uh, producing one game per cart or is this going to be one of those deals where you take an SD card mm. and you purchase the games online, load them on the SD card, and pop it into a cart that's essentially an SD card reader? Well, it becomes a distribution problem, right? Because digital distribution is super cheap and easy. Yeah. If you, as soon as you start trying to sell physical media in stores or something, it's kind of like, uh, you just complicated this gaming platform immensely. And I don't know... I don't know, man. I love the idea. At the same time, it's like I would only walk by and go, oh, that's cool. I'm glad someone's doing that, but I'm not buying it. Well, the other <laughs> the other odd thing about these cartridges is since they're using the Jaguar form factor, the Jaguar had the weirdest shaped cartridges. They're uh, sort of concave in shape. They're not a straight cartridge like you would think of. They have a weird handle. It looks like a Shinto temple roof or something. Uh, it, it's a bizarre... You can't stack the the cartridges very well. So to make a collector's edition out of Jaguar hardware just seems mm. obtuse to me. I, at the same time, you can kind of look at it like a... Well, I mean, in the name, Retro VGS, right? It's kind of got that retro hipster vibe, like vinyl is still really popular, oh, right? Sure. Becoming uh, on, more the, on the other hand, you know, vinyl does have a, a particular kind of audio sound going for it that sure. where where you can put some money into it and and kind of enjoy something that's retro and 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 cool in that sense, but also has a particular reward to it. Mm. You've got this listening experience that uh, is something that you desire if you're really into audio. This gaming experience, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I whatever. I uh, think it's cool. Yeah, it, it was, it was a really cool idea. If it works out, will be the, will be the big question. So another story here: uh, researchers craft a network attack to hack a surgical robot. Uh, kind of. Um, that that was the title of the piece here, and, and and this caught my eye partly because I had a job working for a company that was really into telemedicine. Um, and which is an emerging market. So telemedicine, the whole idea is rather than you walking into a doctor's office or a hospital or uh, your psychologist's office, maybe um, you can do these things remotely. Mm. And so there's high def video that gets involved and uh, and sound. And then if you're going to operate remotely, um, there are robots involved where you can do uh, do surgery and that. Technology is moving right along. It's uh, it's becoming popular. There's a lot of use cases for it. Um, one of the interesting advantages of telemedicine is that if you are a hospital that doesn't have a particular kind of specialist on staff, sure. you can, through the magic of the network, connect to some hospital that does have that specialist on staff and use that person's expertise in that way without you having to actually employ them. You just pay some kind of an access fee and uh, and, and usage fee for uh, for that expertise, which can be really great. Um, there's other things like remote diagnoses that can happen. Uh, you've got a heart condition and uh, you're experiencing uh, a stroke and they need to determine exactly what sort of an event you're going through so that they can uh, triage that correctly. Well, you need a specialist on the line that can help you with that. Um, and what if someone's not available right at that moment? Right. If you can get someone on the line, that's great. Okay, so... This article was about hacking a surgical robot because now, of course, yeah, now you've got uh, security concerns 
if you've got um, any sort of a hardware device in play. And, you know, the, the black hat hackers don't usually go for targets that are going to hurt individual people. It tends to be more philosophical or, or, or moral sometimes where they're going after corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times they go for targets that are not individual, but rather just a big money target where if they can pilfer – uh, millions of dollars out of a credit card company and quote unquote, no one gets hurt. You know, they'll, they'll go after that. So this sort of an attack seems a little more far fetched to me. Would you as a hacker really want to go after a, a surgical robot where someone's life could be impacted because you uh, issued a denial of service attack against this thing? It seems maybe a little less likely, you know, unlikely that you would do that. Even so someone's life is at stake. So yeah, aren't you going to, you know, need to protect that device as much as possible. So the whole point of this test was to uh, deal with um, uh, possible denial of service, possible, possibly getting into the data stream between the operator of the remote, uh, the remote operator of the robot and the robot itself. Right. Because Uh, I I can, I can see, you know, you're in the middle of a procedure and, and this remote doctor is using this robot you know, 1500 miles away or whatever, you're in the middle of a procedure and all of a sudden there's a denial of service and the robot shuts down. Robot shuts down or starts doing weird things right. or is very slow to respond. Erratic movements. things. Uh, so it, this being a preemptive step on the part of the industry, I think is a positive thing. That's, that's, that's a good, that's a key. That's a good thing. And telemedicine is something I'm sure is going to come up in the show uh, a lot in the future. All right. Moving along. Uh, Eric, we both kind of spotted this, um, Spotify, the, uh, the music player that lets you play anything you want on demand and ad free. If you're willing to pay the monthly subscription fee, pretty much all the music in the world has added some more services. So it's not just music. It's now, they really want to be an all in one streaming service. Yeah. I mean, this is potentially a very important step for them as you know, Spotify has been around for years now. They've never made a profit. They've never turned a profit in any quarter. They've lost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars at this point. And so diversifying their content and hopefully driving revenue, you know, actual subscriptions, because I used to subscribe to Spotify, but once I stopped traveling as much, I actually canceled it and just listened to the free version because, hey, what's a commercial every now and then? Uh, it, it's been the same thing for me, too. I mean, Spotify does have a ton of subscribers. You know, this this article, which uh, we pulled from Engadget, mentions that uh, they got 60 million active users. They That's what they claim. And a quarter of those, 15 million, are paying. Uh, and there's a couple of tiers there that you can pay last I knew. There was like a middle tier and an upper tier. Is it still that I, way? I believe so. It's yeah. been a while since I've looked. But there was an interesting uh, tidbit that I saw where someone, a financial analysis said that if they could get all of their users to pay, I think it was $1 every three months, they would be profitable. Wow. So it, it seems like they need to work on their monetization. Well, it seems like... It seems like the ad revenue that they would be generating with that number of listeners, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I know a little bit about the ad business from uh, from some of my podcast work on other other podcasts, and it's all about impressions. So, you know, how many impressions to what sort of an audience mm. you know, are you going to? Now, I mean, Spotify is a mass market where the, you're, you don't have a highly targeted audience; it's kind of a spread audience over all all kinds of demographics, but. You do Even have still, some demographics listen to rap millions, and rock and million. Sure, if you can type people by the sort of music that they like to listen to, and then target ads that way. And I don't know if Spotify's gotten that savvy yet or not. I'm sure they're data mining at some level to but, find out. But you, you'd think that they could, right? Exactly, figure out a, a target and then monetize. You know that way, profitability shouldn't be too far away. Yeah, I mean, it's great that they're adding more content. You know, if if you want to watch content from ESPN or ABC, NBC. Comedy Central, whatever, it looks like that's going to be available inside the new Spotify app. Um, Along with a bunch of podcasts as well. Podcast. Oh, says, I hadn't seen that. It says okay. podcast networks too. So I'm assuming that means Stitcher and uh, Stitcher comes to mind. There's several other ones that are out there yep. that uh, that carry a bunch of different podcasts. Maybe, well, maybe we should look into that. Maybe. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe with the additional content, they'll be able to get that, you know, $3 every, you know, a dollar a month or $3 a month and make up for some of these losses in the past. Who knows? Mm. 
But I, I mean, it also kind of points to Spotify wanting to compete against YouTube. I mean, where do you go to watch videos? We YouTube. go to YouTube. Absolutely. We go to Vimeo too. But Sometimes. I mean, we go to YouTube, right? Yeah. Uh, my understanding of YouTube is it's the second most popular search engine in the world behind Google itself. Yeah. And it's the second biggest social network after Facebook. So there you go. I mean, uh, Spotify is looking at that market and going, we can get in on that. And uh, you know, Vimeo has made a go of it. YouTube certainly made a go of it. And there's been rumors that YouTube is going to do a subscription service where you can have an ad-free experience if you want, which I might pay for, actually. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, why wouldn't Spotify want to get in on that? They got the client deployed to all these people. It It kind of makes sense. And then again... My brain's going, yeah, but I think of Spotify for music. I don't think of Spotify for video. So I'm not sure True, but how easy it'll be for them to make that You also used shift. to think of YouTube for video and not for music. But now they have this whole music component. So yeah, they're true. both going each way, that's true. essentially. Yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah. yeah, it's one to watch. All right, you were telling me about this this NVIDIA thing. NVIDIA, turn, NVIDIA turns on 1080p, 60 frames per second streaming for its grid cloud gaming service, and you were all excited. Tell me about this thing, because okay. I didn't get to read this article. Yeah, this is, this is a, a nerd out bit here. Uh, so NVIDIA launched their Shield tablet, which basically is was originally designed to stream games from your NVIDIA-equipped uh, PC, gaming PC. So you have an NVIDIA video card in your gaming PC, and if you have wireless N or better, basically, you can stream to this handheld. It's a tablet and a controller. So from, is, 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 is this, is, this isn't just simple. I mean, this is something that must keep the frame rate good and all that. Yeah, it's so that you can play, you know, in bed in your gaming PCs hooked up in another room. And, you know, and, and it's not just a simple monitor mirroring. So there's got to be some more magic to it than that. Yeah, basically, the I mean, the inputs are sent directly and Steam is doing a similar thing here with Steam in home streaming, which I actually use fairly frequently, mm-hmm. where my my big, big, bad, nasty gaming rig is down in the basement and I play on my super light ultrabook upstairs and still get the frame rates and I can play on full full resolution. 60 frames per second uh, okay on okay. the ultrabook that doesn't even have dedicated you know it just has an intel graphics card all right so that's the backstory yeah that's the backstory on it what they're what they're doing now is they're actually releasing a console called the shield uh console and it has some other name too here i forget what their you know actual uh big name for it is oh android tv i think is what they're calling it but what this is, you, you subscribe to their service, their streaming service, and they have server farms with servers packed full of NVIDIA video cards. And when you select through this console or your Shield tablet at this point, uh, you select what game you want to play. You get routed to the correct section of the correct data center that you know has the distributed uh, version of the game stored on it. And it streams to your console or tablet in 720p currently. And they they are just mm. now turning on 1080p with 60 frames per second. The the big gotcha with it is you need a 30 megabit connection to guarantee the 1080p stream, which so I'm out cuz I only get 30 22. Meg. 30 meg. Okay, so this is uh, it's almost like it's not a compressed stream. It must, or there's it's, just it's, so much information in that stream. Well, a 1080p stream is is significantly, yeah. But even, but a 30 meg, that's a lot. I mean, you should be able to get 1080p crammed into like a seven meg stream. But you're right? also only seeing 24 frames a second when you're when you're pulling down Netflix. Right, this is 60 right, right, right. frames a second. So yeah. you're, you're more than doubling the bandwidth requirement. And for the response times and and things like that, you need a, a pretty fat pipe to be able to send. You know. And receive that much data, and so God help you if you've got a bandwidth cap. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure this is going to chew through bandwidth. Um, you know, for people that live in the sticks like me with 22 meg uh, internet as the best they can get, you can't do the 1080p. That said, 720p you live in the looks same town. I can get 80 here. What are you using? I have the same cable company. Metrocast is only giving you 22 meg across town. Yeah, but I can get 80 meg here. That is wrong. Oh, maybe there's another package up that I haven't seen. Oh, but anyway, but but, but, the, but just speaking about bandwidth caps, though, I mean, yeah, I, I at, even at 80 meg, um, Metrocast, uh, our provider, they're only going to give me 350 gig per month, which isn't a lot. I no. can tell you, with 
as a cord uh, two, cutter. Two children <laughs> who watch streaming services, and then me, who is a cord cutter and watches streaming services, we're chewing through more like three fifty at least, and typically more like four hundred plus yeah. in the course of a month, uh, including uploads and downloads. Most of that's download, but you know, now, they aggregate them when they are do they their slowing camping. down your your so. bandwidth or do they? shut you off not or? that i've seen i don't I haven't seen them slow anything down and from what i've read on it they're not going to get on you unless you're just a grossly heavily yeah. killing it terabyte um, or whatever and i'm i'm some i'm definitely over but and have been consistently over but not badly okay uh but but if i used a service like this 60 frames a second 30 meg down and i was a heavy gamer i'd be way i'd be <laughs> plowing through yeah it, terabytes of data i bet it chews up choose up bandwidth that's for sure so they've they've got a, a but, it, slew. but it's awesome oh it's it's unbelievable i mean so if you buy the console it's 199 which if you can run these games on high settings like ultra settings 1080p 60 frames per second you're looking at about a you know 1500 dollars pc to run that or even like like an Xbox One, I think is it, I don't. It's come down some. It started at like five hundred. I think it's down. A I bit think it's now. around four hundred right now. Yeah, but still, some of the some of the Xbox One games only run at seven twenty p, and mm. often only at thirty frames a second. If it does run at ten eighty p, so the the game selection that they have out here is is all. I mean, it's first rate stuff. It's um, you know, there's there's Batman Arkham Origins is a huge title. There's the Fear series. There's the Borderlands series, Saints Row um, racing games. There's just every every major game that I, you know, I was scrolling through here and going, wow, that's a good one. I'd like to play that. OK, so I buy the one hundred ninety nine dollar console. Uh, then I have a subscription. Like you, a- Yeah, you have a subscription and there are different tiers. So the 1080p 60 frames is going to require a premium subscription. I don't know what the cost is on that, but you pay, you know, an entry amount for 720p for access to these games. And then 1080p is the premium level and you get access to the games that support 1080p. Mm-hmm. And some, you know, some support 720p right now. Some are up to 1080 and they're working on upgrading them all to 1080p as they do server refreshes and uh, deploy new data centers around the world. It's uh, it's it, this is like it's like the future is now. Well, it's really neat to think that you can get the advantage of the hardware remotely and not have latency and whatever be a be enough of a concern. I mean, if the games are playable and that's great, they've sorted out all that stuff. Fabulous. I mean, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Yep. You can put way cheaper hardware out in the remote sites and just put all your hardware energy uh, in the data centers. And then if no one's using it, you can shut it mine off. bitcoins or mine bitcoins <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, hack surgical robots. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. So we got a couple of quickies here before we hit our death watch for today. Um, uh, this is one I picked up just kind of reading the morning news. This uh, came off of the CNN feed. Um, NASA reports that a 10,000 year old ice shelf down in Antarctica is going to be gone by 2020. And this is one of the things, this is kind of a subtext to the, the global warming story that we've been hearing so much about for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. Um, as soon as it was determined that it's actually a thing. So here's some more details about the ice shelf that's disappearing. This is one of the last remaining sections of Antarctica's Larsen B ice shelf. It's dramatically weakening, according to this new NASA study. I'm reading from the article here. Uh, Some more stats. Larsen B measured 4,445 square miles in January of 95. So we're going back 20 years ago. Sure. It went down to 2,573 square miles by February 2002. And there was a major disintegration at that point. A month later, Larson B was down to 1,337, huh, which is lead, uh, 1,337 <laughs> yeah. uh, square miles. And now, um, they were, now we're into 2015, it's 618 square miles. And wow. that's less than the size of Rhode Island or less than half the size of Rhode Island, which is the smallest state in the United States. Two decades ago, therefore, Larson B was slightly smaller than the state of Connecticut. You know, again, if you're not a U.S. citizen, which I know many of you listening to this may not be, that might not mean a lot to you. But grab a map of the uh, the U.S., look at the northeast corner of the country, and you'll find the states of Connecticut and Rhode Island right next to each other and what their borders are to help you get a sense of that. And I think you know, my point is only I, I have a very skeptical mind, okay? When I hear any sort of sensational news report or over-dramatized news report, I go, eh, 
eh, we'll see over time what's true and what's not. And global warming is one of those topics that I've been like, eh, you know, we'll see what happens because there's, we know from history, there's been a lot of cyclical global cooling and warming cycles. You can tell that from ice cores. You can tell that from uh, rock layers. Just you can kind of look in historically and, and surmise what the temperature of the earth was. But it really seems incontrovertible at this point. I mean, global warming, if you don't think it's a thing, it's a thing. There's not. I mean, there's just an overwhelming amount of science behind it that demonstrates this is just the 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 latest story in a string of stories. And and to be, you know, completely fair. Yes, the the globe was warming before, you know, humans started putting carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But we're certainly speeding it up. Yeah, we it, it was on a sense. rise, but yeah. it was not going to rise anywhere near to the level that it currently is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess the jury is maybe still out on how much we could impact the rate of global warming. You know, if we stopped burning fossil fuels and and all became you know, vegetarians, so that we could uh, reduce the beef herd out there and their flatulence. Would we? affect global warming to a point where things went back to what we would consider normal, whatever normal is. I, I don't know. And I don't know that science knows either. Right. Or are definitely we, are not we, helping. Are we past the point where stopping now would, you know, revert anything and we just keep where we are? Mm. I mean, the earth has historically through the, you know, 4 billion years or 4.7 billion years uh, shown resilience and, and the ability to bounce back and, and, you know, balance out equilibrium, uh, after disasters and things like that, but it takes a long time. Mm. So, and then one more light fun story before we, uh, we hit death watch the kitty, the kitty. (laughs) (laughs) Cats are awesome. I have four cats. I love cats. Uh, cats are, cats are great. And if you don't like cats, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Okay. That established, uh, Tracy Westwood's cat. Merlin appears to break 100 decibels purring. (laughs) That is a loud purr on an iPhone in uh, in this particular YouTube video that was out there. Now it was not actually that loud because I mean, if you think about a hundred decibels, that is that's rock concert loud. That's yeah, really loud. And I, I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna say, can an iPhone microphone actually discern the difference between eighty and hundred decibels? I, I, I'm gonna guess not yeah. because uh, Guinness World Records m- measured this uh, Tracy Westwood's cat Merlin and officially recorded Merlin at sixty seven point eight decibels, which is still good enough to beat the old loudest per of 67.68 decibels. So congratulations, Merlin. You have the world's loudest recorded purr. And if you have a cat that seems to purr really loud and you didn't know that was a thing, I guess take some measurements and find out. Maybe Guinness has got something for are, you. Are there like kitty purring world championships? <laughs> Who knew? I don't know. Because, wow. That would be I mean, awesome. That's, that's crazy. Uh, all right, Death Watch. Uh, as we were, we weren't going to do a Death Watch this week, and then Eric says, "Oh, fax machines!" Like, yes, fax machines. <laughs> so, fax machines definitely belong on Death Watch. We don't even need to say more because all of you that listened to this went, "Are they still a thing?" <laughs> yeah, they're still a thing. <laughs> they are. Their fax machines still exist, and we uh, we think they belong on Death Watch. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is technology that was slow and painful and you know poor image resolution 20 years ago i remember you know faxes coming through and going oh yeah you can't read that one you need to send it again and that was 20 years ago but do you remember fax spam yes yeah so the solution to that was always take a black piece of paper and fax it back if you if you took a black piece of paper yeah yeah taped it to another piece of paper and fed it through the loop yeah. and you just redial and set it to 99 copies or whatever. <laughs> and so their, their toner is just, you can actually hear the toner, you know, getting sucked out as 99 pages of black pages. That's, come a, out. that's a fax back hack. Yeah, it's a, a fact fax back attack. Yeah. <laughs> hack a, fax back hack it. attack. Yeah. Oh, so still on Death Watch, popover ads, which we introduced last week because we hate them so much, not because we think they're going away terribly soon. I'm just hoping their unpopularity will make them die. FM radio, it's going to take a while for FM radio to fail out, uh, to fade out, but we think it's going away. Title, I guess you found something that makes us wonder what's up. Yeah, so they introduced a a half half price subscription level that you get. You, I think it's a standard 128 kilobit instead of the 320. Um, it's nine ninety nine a month, and it seems like they're gaining traction with that. 
So the whole we mm. cater to audiophiles tagline that, that they've been throwing out there wasn't working. They've added in this non-audiophile streaming service for nine ninety nine, which is around what Spotify charges. Yeah, and only with Spotify at nine ninety nine. Maybe they've tweaked their levels. I don't know. But when I was paying nine ninety nine nine ninety nine a month for Spotify, I was getting three twenty k right uh, streaming. So eh, yeah, they're know. gaining they're gaining some traction. They're you know they're not losing sub- subscribers at this point. Um, I I I don't really see there being room in the market for title and Beats Audio and Spotify and Pandora and. Apple, if if that's is yeah, they Apple is, is doing Beats, beats yep. Radio, yeah. Um, so it, I, I I don't know that they're again. I, I think I said this last time. I don't think it'll be you know this year necessarily, but unless they shift their model somehow to be able to compete better with the Spotify's and things, mm. I just don't see it growing at the rate that they were probably hoping for. All right. Well, that wraps up the present section of the podcast. And now we're going to move into the past. And, uh, and, and and I'll be frank with you. This past section was a little lazy because the one I had picked out, which I'm going to do in a future segment, I did not get time to completely research yet. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. You're just going to have to imagine. <laughs> but so but what Eric and I did come up with is we we started reminiscing about toys that we used to build stuff when uh, when we were kids. And I came up with uh, with three different things that occupied many, many, many hours of my of my youth: Tinker Toys, Lincoln Logs, and something a little more esoteric called uh, Capsula. So, did you have Tinker Toys set? Tinker Toys and Lincoln Logs. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I was a Lego kid as well, but Tinker Toys. Uh, I, I had friends that had Tinker Toys. I had Lincoln Logs, and between mm-hmm. us, yeah, we dumped hours and hours and hours of our childhoods into these. I'd, I'd actually never heard of the Capsula, so I'm I'm excited to hear you talk about it. But we'll start well, with the Tinker Toys. Let's, let's start with Tinker Toys. So, um. I, I, Wikipedia's got a nice little summary article here. Tinker Toy construction set was created first in 1914. So we're talking, this has been over a century uh, ago that this thing started up. Um, The idea here was that uh, the guys that created this thing saw children playing with sticks and empty spools of thread, and they went to build a toy and then market this thing that would allow children to use their imaginations. So, I mean, it was very, you know, we see kids playing with with stuff that they find around like kids do. I mean, uh, I joke with my kids, you guys have all your screens and video games, and we played with (laughs) sticks and rocks, and we liked it. (laughs) We played kick the can. And and we did play with sticks and rocks, and we liked it. I mean, that that was part of it. That's true. I mean, yeah, we had video games too, but, uh, you know, that was, kids can play with anything. You know, and so this so Tinker Toys was really inspired by that, seeing kids play with what they found at hand and then building something so that they could uh, construct. Um, so what what is this set like? So, again, I'm reading from Wikipedia here. The cornerstone of the set is a wooden spool, roughly two inches in diameter, with holes drilled every 45 degrees around the perimeter, then one hole through the center. Unlike the center, the perimeter holes do not go all the way through. In addition, you've got a bunch of differing length sticks, each length being a different color. Uh, and the set was intended to be based on the Pythagorean progressive right triangle. Um, so the sticks go into the holes in the spools, and then you can make whatever the heck your brain can come up with. Yeah, Ferris wheels if you want. Anything, everything. Uh, just it, it's crazy what you can build with them. Um there's little paddle wheels and attachments that fit in here. So you can kind of make uh really creative sort of stuff, spindly stick figure kind of things. But if you're a kid and it's your imagination, that's running wild sticks and spools and little fins make anything. It's the wireframe of your imagination. It, it, yeah. <laughs> oh, let's see what you did there. Yeah. Yes. So here's some, uh, some, some, some dorky stats for you. The, Tinker Toy Sticks before 1992 were made with a diameter of uh, 0.25 inches or a quarter of an inch. Earlier sets had natural wood sticks but changed to colored sticks in the 1950s. And then if you measure these, the orange sticks are one and a quarter inches, the yellow ones 2.15 inches, blue 3.35, red 5.05, green 7.4, and purple, the really long ones, 10.85. Spools are 1.35 inches, holes of uh, 0.3 inches in depth. Okay, we're getting to a point here. The point, <laughs> the ratio of succeeding, of succeeding stick sizes when including adjustments for spool diameter and hole depth work out to be the square root of two. 
This enables the construction of 45, 45, 90 uh, degree right triangles. Again, see the Pythagorean theorem, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, the, in other words, the sizes right down to how deep the holes are in the spools and the diameter of the spools themselves are purposely built that you can do mathematically correct constructions. And, and if the holes in the spools weren't that depth, it wouldn't work quite right. So it, it's all hinged upon mathematical nerdery. So long story short, Tinker Toys are cool. They're and awesome. they're still cool. Yeah. <laughs> Give your kids Tinker Toys. That that would be And awesome. they're still made. I mean, the 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 Connects company, Connects came out I think in the 90s and I remember, you know, seeing ads or whatever. Apparently, Connects are the big thing now and mm. Tinker Toys is a sub brand of Connects now. Mm. Hasbro has licensed it to the Connects company. Mm. So you you can go out and buy these. We actually have a set that uh, we're we're going to be building with my daughter at some point in the future. Um, it's a like a chemistry based one where you build molecules or something. I, my wife picked it up, and I haven't honestly looked too closely at it. But you can nice. still get them. Yeah, it's it's a nerd thing. We all like to build stuff. I mean, there's 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 buckyballs and there's um, all kinds of different magnet sets, and of course Lego, and uh, and then Lincoln Logs. So let's talk a little bit about Lincoln Logs. Uh, did you have a set of these? Oh, I still you have still a set do. of these. And, and, and my memory is they came in a bucket, big tin bucket. Yep. They still yeah. do too. We, we got some for our kids a couple of years ago. And they're so, so the idea with the Lincoln logs was kind of like you could build like a, like a log cabin kind of thing. So it was just a, a stick of wood that was rounded. Um, it was, it was like a dowel, but then flattened on the edges and with right. notches cut out on the corners and in the middle strategically on the longer pieces. The exact pieces. shape you would make a log cabin out of. Yeah. And then you build buildings um, and they're all, they all nicely fit together. So if you're a kid, you've got some stability to this structure. Uh, and I can't tell you how many hours I spent with Lincoln logs, but as you said, the tinker toys and the Lincoln logs would often be combined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you got a good thing over here. You got a good thing over there. You combine them to make, you know, a monstrously good thing that, you can then yeah, crash a it, toy it kinda, plane into or whatever. So, so, so this was a this was a, a a toy that was not really related to as a building toy to Tinker Toys and Lincoln Logs, but I also had a, a Play Mobile when I was a kid. Oh yeah, little plastic guys that could fit on a little plastic horse, and so they occupied uh, Lincoln Log Town and uh, and Tinker Toy combined town and uh, into all one big world. And there were like hostage situations and there were, there were fights, lots of fights, yeah. hostage situations, uh, assure, assuredly lots of chases. Uh, and I'm pretty sure some of the spacemen sets came in there too. So the spaceship would land at the Lincoln log house. It was all very confusing for the toys. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> actually that was covered in a documentary, a three part series, toy stories, one, two, and three. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, it's like a bad episode of toy story. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit of Lincoln Log history for you. Invented in 1916 when John Lloyd Wright was working in Japan with his father. Again, I'm reading from Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. Uh, the mold for this toy was based on the architecture of the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, ah. designed by the inventor's father. The foundation of the hotel was designed with interlocking log beams, which made the structure, quote unquote, earthquake proof. I mean, this is 1916 tech we're talking about here. It says earthquake proof so, as it could be then. Yeah. 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 So when he returned to the States, John organized his company, the Red Square Toy Company, so named after his father's famous symbol, and marketed the toy in 1918. He was issued a patent uh, in uh, 1920 for a toy cabin construction. And soon after, he changed the name to J.L. Wright Manufacturing. The original Lincoln Log came with instructions on how to build Uncle Tom's cabin as well as Lincoln's cabin. Subsequent sets were larger and more elaborate, which sounds to me like Legos now come as a set and give you instructions on how to build something, right? right. So, I mean, the Lincoln Logs that I have, like I said, it came in a bucket. Here's yeah. Here logs, they are. Toys. Play, play, go nuts. Have yeah. fun. Yeah, go nuts, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we did, yeah. So the toy was a hit following as it did the introduction of Tinker Toys and Erector sets introduced a few years before. Well, of course. So Kinex, the toy's current distributor, oh, Kinex again, yep. we're back, states the product was named after Abe Lincoln, the 16th president of the U.S., who was famously born in a log cabin due to patriotism at the time during World War I. Others attribute the name to Frank Lloyd Wright's original name, Frank Lincoln Wright, or the alteration of the name Lincoln Logs, Lincoln spelled L-I-N-K-I-N as in linking logs, all of which makes sense to us 
a great toy. Lots of hours had by all because it doesn't lock you into this one thing. Anything that you can build to me is like the best kind of a, a toy. It's an open ended. Dude, I will still play with Lego for that reason, because I can just take whatever's in my brain or appeals to me. I get this big plastic template to work with, and I can just start stacking bricks and make a thing, yep. whatever the thing is. My my kids will ask to, to play Legos, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, in, I'm on. Let's do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's fun to build the sets according to the instructions. That's cool. But, it, yeah, you take it out of the box, you build the set, and then that's basically the last time you do it. Usually, I mean, it's, you yeah. take it apart, and I, I so so I would get Lego sets when I was back as a kid into Lego. I'd get Lego sets for Christmas or my birthday. It was usually like a big present. Yeah, you know, that was a big right. deal. I would build the set the first time, but I because I I'm I'm a little OCD and I kind of felt like I had to right. So I would build the set, and then I kind of feel like all right, I'm free. I built it. <laughs> Tear it all apart. There's my past to do whatever I want with it. And I and that that's exactly what I would do. I would tear it all down and then start building spaceships of my own creation. I, I got a lot of space related Lego sets. Uh and I would uh just go nuts building that and and, and a lot of hot rod cars, a yeah. lot of dragsters yeah. with missiles and weapons you and gotta nuts. have missiles on a dragster. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so one more toy here. We talked about Tinker Toys, Lincoln Logs, and now uh, Capsula, which I think is a little more obscure because uh, it was a little pricier of a toy. Um, but it was uh, well, I'll just because Wikipedia did a great job introducing it, I, I think it's the best way I can describe it. I'm just going to read it right from the Wikipedia entry. Capsula was a construction toy brand consisting primarily of gears and motors that were encased in a spherical plastic capsule that could be connected to form various uh, static or dynamic toys suitable for land or water. So the idea here is you've got, you've got this plastic bubble inside the plastic bubble is a motor or is uh, you know a, a gear inside. And then you'd have kind of like a power takeoff on a tractor. Yeah. You'd have an axle coming off of the thing that you could use to drive some modular, thing. some other so, module yeah. uh, that would connect to the system. So you could have a motor and a module and then a gear and a module. And then, uh, you know, some drive shaft hanging off the end of this thing that could turn a, turn a wheel or propeller uh, or, or yeah, yeah, whatever. exactly. Um, and there were there were battery modules, and there were uh, there, so there's wheels for this thing. You could plug wires into it to get from batteries uh, to get from the battery powers to the uh, the motor uh, and drive the whole thing ahead. And it was a blast. I mean, it would come and show you, give you different things that you could build with it. So like some of the modules that would plug into the plastic uh, uh, motor modules and so on were were just big plastic floats. So you could make a boat with the thing. It mm. was waterproof enough that you could actually put this thing in water and with a prop actually drive it ahead like a boat. Um, it was a blast. It was just all these modules that was, it was like a step up from Tinker Toys. It was a step up from Lincoln Logs. It was a more mature kind of a toy. Yeah. And so looking at the picture, I, I actually, I remember these now, now that I'm looking at the photo, mm. I never had any, but I forget where I had seen them. Some friend must've had it or something. And I remember looking at it and going, Whoa, this, you can, it's electric. You yeah. can do stuff with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the fact that it goes in the water, I mean, as a kid, I if there was a puddle, I don't it, it didn't matter if the toy was designed to go in the water. I was generally going to put it in the water and see how it did anyway. So the fact that it was actually waterproof, uh that that was brilliant. It it was a lot of fun. I mean, I remember playing many hours with it and just coming up with all kinds of crazy stuff because if you get you, you you got a motor in this thing so you can drive stuff ahead. So you, it's just anything that popped into your head that would be cool. Again, it really catered to the imagination. You were sort of locked down in the sense of you had a plastic capsule that had to be plugged in in a certain way to drive something else in the system. But you were still pretty free to do what you want. I mean, they figured out how to compartmentalize motor and motion and uh, and gears driving the systems ahead and power in such a way that it was easy for a kid to use. And and the other thing is you half the time probably didn't make things that would be practical and, and move, you know, independently. You might've made some sort of a weird, you know, windmill or, or mm. something, you know, it, it didn't necessarily have to be, I'm making a car. No. Right. And so, you know, it, it could be used as a prop. 
yeah. for another, you know, play device that you're and, doing with your connects or and, your and, and Lincoln logs and Lincoln yeah. logs. Yeah. <laughs> and they had plans. I mean, they had several plans. Okay. With this particular capsule kit that you bought, you know, some big box with a whole bunch of different modules in it, you can make X, Y, Z. Yeah. All these different things. Um, and they were around for, for quite a while. I, um, I was just reading through the product line here and, uh, in the Wikipedia article, you know, they talk about some of the more advanced stuff, which I didn't get anything quite this advanced, but there was a capsule of computer. Um, that, that was the flagship range of this toy set was based around a multifunction computer capsule capable of controlling motors and lights. Oh, wow. There was a, a voice command system. It had a small computer that could respond to a number of voice commands. There was a sister product called Spacelink, which had no motorized parts, but instead focused on science fiction themed accessories. Um, so it was more of a less of a sciencey thing and more of a fiction. You know, fiction yeah, <laughs> more of a fictiony thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and more and more stuff. Um, and then a little bit of trivia about the set in January 1987, Access Software announced the Robotic Workshop, a kit designed for home computers that used a range of capsule parts. The kit included over 50 capsule parts, including two motors, gears, wheels, and sensors. The kit also included an electronic control unit that plugged into the user port of a Commodore 64, uh. which we've talked about on this show before, an instruction manual with 50 tutorial projects, and special programming language on a or special programming software on a floppy disk. Later released for Apple Atari and IBM computers as well. So science stories are cool. I mean, and today, uh, what is the, uh, is it the Mindstorm? What is it the Lego robotics set that you can get that are really kind of pricey but really cool? Uh, I don't know. I think Mindstorm's the right that set. That sounds right. Yeah. I mean, I know there's like the technique sets and, mm. and all that. Um, but yeah, the, the motorized and programmable and all that. It, it's, it's amazing how far, uh, it's amazing how relevant Lego has remained. Yeah, <laughs> I yes, they they keep up, and I think they're really the successor to to all of these past toys in a lot of ways. I still think all the the old toys are are cool though. There's something about plastic that gets a little tedious for me, and uh, having stuff that's wood is is there's nice. There's a tactile it's, feel difference, and you know. Those are still cool toys yep. to me, for sure. Well, all right, enough about the past. Let's move to the future. Mr. Sutphin, what did you find? So there's this new uh, charging technology here by a company called Nucleus Scientific. <laughs> we do seem to keep going back to the battery power for the future. It seems yeah. to be a problem for us. Yes. Batteries are the future. Well, electricity is the future. How's that? Mm, yeah. So the the big thing with this is that uh, ostensibly it can cut charging times by up to 20, a factor of 20. Mm. And so what they've done is uh, they've, they've come up with a solution. Uh, they, they actually revealed it at TechCrunch disrupt New York recently that can charge a cell phone in about three minutes as oh, opposed no. to two to three hours Yeah, okay. uh, that, that we're currently used to uh, with this technology. The company aims to allow Tesla to be able to fully recharge uh, one of their cars in the time it takes to pump a tank of gas. Aha. Okay. So it, this, this, uh, this is so the this, killer to app. Me, this is, that is the killer app because of course, charging the, your stupid electric car is one of the big user problems. I mean, it's just a real world thing. Okay. We solve it today, but you drive your electric car all day, charge it in the garage overnight, you know, and then you're ready to go tomorrow. But if you want to go 600 miles in one day, uh, You're carving you, out, you know, 45 minutes to two hours at a charging station in between one or two times, depending on how, you know, conservatively you're driving. And you're, which you're really limits the practicality yeah. of an electric car for certain applications. You know, that one specifically long distance cross country hauling uh, of, of your butt from one place <laughs> to another. Um, but if I can plug in at a gas station and get electrons uh that'd be fabulous and just get it done in my normal five in to three to minute fill yeah up. three to three to ten minutes depending on how much you need you mm. know uh that that really turns the the weakest aspect of an electric car on its head and brings it to you know not only parity uh with gasoline or diesel but it, it actually becomes uh, advantageous at that point because generally speaking maybe maybe they'll make you know it more expensive because it's this fancy technology but generally speaking filling a battery with electrons is a lot cheaper than filling a, a tank with with gasoline or diesel 
Yeah, and I think on average, the if the electricity was generated in a, in a way that wasn't burning fossil fuels, then you, you're coming out ahead there as well. If it generated with wind, if it was generated with solar, which we're going to get to more and more over time. I mean, even if it's generated with coal, uh, you know, a, a coal plant with the proper scrubbers and you know yeah. the, the proper environmental equipment in place is going to be cleaner to charge a battery powered car than burning the fossil fuels directly in your car. Yes. So, you know, on a large scale, it's, it's advantageous. Um, so there are multiple breakthroughs here in, in both hardware and software that nucleus scientific is using. Um, it uses custom batteries, custom sensors, uh, custom feedback control systems and, you know, software algorithms that, you know, they, they do allow for this unheard of charging time, uh, but it also extends the life of the battery, which is a really important factor as well. Uh, yeah. If this actually works, Apple might buy them like tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Right. Reasonable acquisition. I mean, I've got a, I've got an iPhone 4S that's almost two years old now and I can't keep that thing charged to save my life. It's awful. Yeah. It's down to probably a quarter or a half of what the original oh, battery it's, life it's, was. I just keep it plugged, plugged in, in all the time constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, batteries losing the ability to charge over time is a, is a major concern. So they built a large battery testing facility uh, to build out the technology. In their lab, they recharged a 14,000 milliamp battery, which is roughly equal to nine smartphone batteries. Or, or it's like one of the big recharge bricks you can get. Yeah. A lot of those are 14, 15 or 20,000 milliamps. Right. Yeah. They, they recharged it in 100 seconds. Yeah. So a minute 40. Jeez. The charge time, though, if they increased it to three minutes, so just over double, right? The company was able to double the life of the battery. So instead of cramming the electrons in quite so quickly, they moved it from 100 seconds to 180 seconds. Yep. Then uh, the, the double the life of the battery. Okay, so charging it too quickly would... Yeah, I mean, you're, you, you, I guess you can come up with an analogy of, you know, you're, you're trying to put things into a container. Well, yeah, you can cram all your, your clothes and shoes into your luggage in 15 seconds, mm -hmm. but you're not doing any favors to either the luggage or the clothes and shoes, as opposed to taking three <laughs> yeah. minutes to, you know, carefully take folded stuff and put it in a little bit slower and, you know, not zip up your luggage and destroy the clothing. Could you imagine completely <laughs> charging your phone in three minutes? I mean, it, that's a joke now. It's I mean, flabbergasting. You, you drain the phone down to nothing at night, plug it in, and it should be charged by morning. Yeah. But it's going to take a long time otherwise. And I know there's a uh, – I have a, a power brick I use that is 20,000 milliamps. I, I hike, and so oh, right. what I use to charge my stuff when I'm out in the woods for more than a day is one of these big bricks. It takes 10 hours to charge that thing. Yeah. 10 hours. And that's on a wall plug, right? Yes. Yeah. So like my phone, uh, I, I have a, a, a large screen Android and I can wall charge that thing in about two or three hours. But mm -hmm. if I'm doing it off of USB, you're looking at, you know, four, five, six hours if it's fully drained. Yeah. So to have to have the technology to be able to charge that in three minutes. Yeah, it's that's a game changer. <laughs> We're going to have to start looking at future tech that doesn't involve batteries <laughs> no batteries all the time well actually you did find another article about about oculus there's there the the virtual reality helmet people the thing that makes you sick yeah yeah <laughs> which doesn't have a battery as far as i know but um yeah so oculus vr is a, a vr headset that's been in development for for several years now and they came out with with a dev kit for it to you know proof of concept it and they've come out with a second dev kit that's been refined and and all this and along the way they've uh, they've had numerous games either optimized for the Oculus or designed specifically for it independent big studios you name it um it's you know really been the big name in in-home virtual reality technology it's sort of pushed the the envelope on it so Oculus everyone's been asking okay when is the consumer version coming you know, mm. And they said, oh, well, we'll probably have it out in 2015. You know, it's going to be X resolution running at Y frames per second and all this. And then they said, well, no, OK, we want to go full 1080p and we need 
it to run it this many frames so that people don't get motion as motion sick and all this. Yeah. I, I just want to park there on that motion sick thing for a second. Cause there is a thing with that. Oh, I mean, I, I definitely is. So I was at a, a, a trade show Cisco live two or three years ago and Cisco had built a virtual reality interface the for one of their management platforms. It wasn't for telepresence. Oh, no. wow. It was actually a novel way to do management. And you'd put the virtual reality headset on. You'd see all the devices below you, like spread out on a field below you. And then you could, I forget what, that, what the input fly motion was. Basically, yeah, you fly down. I'm, I'm having flashbacks of Jurassic Park. It's a Unix system. I know this. <laughs> it, was, it was sort of like, it's like that. That's really cool. You, completely useless. You but- walk up to this 3D thing in front of you. And there were, you know, now you could see the CLI and stuff like that. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't intended to really demonstrate it's a tech demo. You know, this is the, a new thing we're doing. And we're going to release it. It was more novel and interesting, and kind of like, what if we could manage systems in using a 3D interface? What would that be like? But man, it does make you. It made me a little dizzy. It made me it made my stomach kind of flip around. It was it was a struggle. So I'm I'm hopeful that if this thing goes production, it sounds awesome because it was so it was immersive. It was like you were in the world wearing yeah. this helmet. So one but, of the, one of the big uh, things that that researchers have found, and not specifically Oculus or HTC or whoever, but uh, it was a university, I believe, found that if you put an artificial nose into the software, right, right. I think we mentioned that last week, right? Uh, we, we meant to and, and never got around to it. Oh, we didn't. Okay. Um, I'll never read the you, story anyway. If you put a virtual nose in the display, A, your brain filters it out, and B, it reduces motion sickness by a, a large percentage, in, in a large percentage of, of test subjects that they, they did A-B testing on this. Correction, your brain did filter it out. Every single person listening to this podcast can see nothing but their nose right now. That's right. right yep. <laughs> You're going, oh, man, I can see it all of a sudden. And by the way, your tongue is in your mouth. And how does it possibly fit in your mouth? And how? when you swallow, you hear a popping sound in your ears that your brain filters out as well. Did you know there's a constant ringing in your ears? You never noticed it until just now, did you? <laughs> <laughs> We're evil. Um, so, yeah, researchers put a virtual nose in in the B test column for users in this research setting. And when they asked people at the end of it, they said, okay, so how did you feel about about the nose that was in, in your view. And almost every single subject went, what nose? Ah. Because your brain filters it out normally. but and, and also makes your brain think. It gives your brain a reference point yeah. for, for motion in, you know, relative to your body. So your brain sees it, but filters it out. So there's, there's talk about implementing that into future virtual reality systems. So all this to say that the, the Oculus VR will be shipping in 2016, which is significantly out from their target date. The big question here is they're not, they're not the only game in town anymore. Now there's the HTC Vive or Vive uh, that's launching supposedly November of this year, 2015. Uh, and Valve company behind steam Mm. is partnered with them to to bring this to market and And i'm seeing a note in there this thing's good for 90 frames per second it does 90 frames per second jeepers and has full steam integration uh for any game that's 3d basically they're supposed to be making this work for any 3d engine game that runs on the valves engine which is called source uh so it it may enable vr on any source-based game running up to 90 frames per second if your machine can push it at the resolutions required and all that. This is interesting. I know gaming's the killer app for the virtual reality technology, right? I I get that. Uh, Because who doesn't want to be completely immersed in their environment? I mean, I do. I mean, the the flat panel's great, but gosh, if I'm doing 3D gaming, especially first-person shooter or like a driving simulator... Anything like that, wow, that'd just be fabulous. Where you can turn your head and see. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I'm also thinking about, you know, being an IT guy, well, we both are, that there's got to be some interesting applications for this stuff. I mean, I'm thinking about like 3D modeling of, of environments in useful ways. I mean, the Cisco demo I referred to was, it was a little kitschy, it was interesting, but not especially useful, I didn't think, just kind of a different take on things. But there's got to be useful ways that you could interact with your infrastructure uh, and get things done using a 3D modeled interface like that. That could be quite cool. Yeah. 
it's an incredibly compelling idea. And I saw a, a little video of a guy who was wearing, I think it was an Oculus, but he had, um, almost like, you know, the, the Wii motion controls. Mm-hmm. He had one in each hand for this and he was modeling in VR using these controllers, using a, a, a 3d modeling program. And what they did was they took video of him doing it and then they overlaid what he was building onto the video. And so you're seeing what he's building as he's pulling the controllers around and, and drawing mm. uh, some sort of insect or something. And you're seeing it in, you know, 3D space in front of the guy. And it was just a really cool visualization of what he was building inside the VR. Yeah. So applications like that are, are kind of, uh, you know, that's a win as well for 3D modelers. We'll start merging that with some of the hologram technology. I remember seeing an article uh, where it was it basically showed you the uh, the scene from the first Star Wars where Princess Leia kind of yeah. shoots out of R two D two there. Help me, Obi Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. <laughs> that whole scene, um, it, it was basically that. Only it was on a on a tabletop, so kind of coarse, not very fine grained resolution, but it was this holographic image. So I mean, as as that starts to develop and then inter- intersects with uh, with this virtual reality stuff. You know, how far are we from the Star Trek holodeck anyway? Not that far. I mean, in a, in a in another future segment, we can talk about that. Uh, there's there's a team that's trying to build essentially holodeck, you know, version point nine or whatever, mm. uh, and using this sort of technology plus the spatial awareness. Uh, it, it's it's an interesting and exciting time to to be a, a tech junkie. Well, dude, we're at about an hour. So what do you say we call it for show number four of Citizens of Tech? Put it in the books. Put it in the books. <laughs> Read us out, my friend. That'll do it for Citizens of Tech episode number four. We hope you enjoyed our glance back uh, and forward at technology. As always, you can follow our podcast on Twitter at Citizens of Tech. My name is Eric Sutphin. Follow me on Twitter at Zutphin. And with me again, as always, Ethan, Ethan Banks. Banks. at EC Banks on Twitter. My blog is EthanCBanks.com. And uh, thanks for listening to the show today. We'll be back next week. Talk to you soon. <laughs>